Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I am talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. We've been talking quite a bit over the last few podcasts about the First World War, and as we approach St. Patrick's Day, I thought we should talk about Canada's Irish community during that time, and there's no better person to talk about this important subject than Mark McGowan, Professor of History and Celtic Studies at the University of Toronto. Mark is the author of many books, including the very latest, The Imperial Irish, Canada's Catholics Fight the Great War, 1914-1918, and it's published by McGill-Queens University Press. Welcome to the microphone, Mark. Thanks. Nice to be here. Mark, you've been writing about the Irish experience in Canada for almost 30 years now with a number of really great books, including an important biography of Bishop Michael Power, who is the founder of St. Michael's Cathedral just down the street here, as well as a study of the Irish experience at the turn of the 20th century. What fuels your interest in the First World War? I think it was probably a family connection with the First War. I mean, my grandfather was in the Royal Flying Corps, had a great uncle who fought in the 15th Toronto Battalion, and he was at Ypres. And my wife's great uncle died on the Hampshire. He was a ship surgeon serving Lord Kitchener. So, I mean, there's a family connection, but I was also very interested in the war. When I was doing my dissertation back in the mid-80s, it struck me that very little had been written outside the conscription crisis in Canada with regard to religion and war. And after I finished the dissertation, which did have a chapter in it on Toronto's Catholics in the war, I thought, you know, this really deserves a much larger treatment. And when you say 30 years ago, it's frightening because that seed was planted about 30 years ago. And this book was kind of Libris Interruptus throughout the whole process. There was always other things happening, other books, other projects I was asked to do. So I was glad in the last couple of years to collate 30 years of research coast to coast. In fact, There's not much on Newfoundland in this book because, of course, it wasn't part of Canada during the Great War, but I did go to St. John's. I worked in archives there, and so this is really my first comprehensive look at the Catholic community, mostly Irish, but there are others in this book from coast to coast. Most of it is focused on English Canada. It is, and I think that was quite deliberate. Even though the research started, it was going to be just the Catholic Church in all of its dimensions, so I mean, that would be Eastern Rite as well, but it became clear that I just wanted one volume as opposed to... No, no, that's fine. There's enough material here for one book. Tell us about the Irish community at the turn of the 20th century. How should we remember the Irish community as Canada took on the 20th century? Well, it's a good question because it's one of the ones I try to tackle right out that I really don't think there was such a thing as an Irish community in Canada. I think there was, sounding like Joe Clark, a community of communities. And Irishness took on a different complexion depending on where you were in the country. And I think back in 74, John Moyer, who was my thesis supervisor, had coined this term double minority. And English-speaking Catholics, particularly Irish, tended to behave differently when they were juxtaposed as a double minority between an English-speaking Protestant majority in terms of language and wherein Irish were a minority religion and French-Canadian Catholics as the majority Francophone within the Catholic Church. So Irish found themselves in a double minority. So you can't claim language, you can't claim religion as your principal badge of identity. You claim your Irishness. So you'll find that the emphasis on Irishness in a place like Montreal, for example, is very profound. 
You go to Toronto, it's different. You go to Halifax, it's different. I mean, Halifax itself is one of those cities that is a garrison city for the British Empire. It's, you know, the warden of the north on the North Atlantic. And the Irish tend to blend in with that imperialist culture there more so than in other places. If you're looking for Irish resistance and wearing that badge profoundly, you'll find it in Montreal. You'll find it to some degree in Quebec City. You'll also find it in Ottawa. But, you know, in other cities in Canada and in rural areas, Irishness is different. There are customs that are retained. There's a sense of belonging to something greater. But really what we have is kind of regional Irishness in Canada. I get the impression that there's very little division between Protestant Irish and Catholic Irish once they're in Canada, or is there? Well, there is. And again, that takes on an intensity depending on where you are in the country and what issue might be at play. So, example, in Ontario, separate schools will always bring, you know, the Irish who are represented in the Orange Lodge on the Protestant side, bringing them to loggerheads with Catholics. There is always a lightning rod of some sort, schools is it, that would bring clashes. But, you know, in rural areas, my grandmother, for example, grew up in western Ontario. The only public meeting place in Vesta, which is about 20 minutes north of Walkerton in Bruce County, was the Orange Hall. And so whether you were Catholic or Protestant, you used the Orange Hall. It was the venue. It's where you went for a dance. In the 1890s, we have still the rise of the Protestant Protective Association. In 1996, they do take five or six seats. Dalton McCarthy, we're talking about here, is still a presence. But I get the impression that the Catholics have overcome that kind of thing. I think they're still conscious of it. And they're still conscious of the fact that they often are misunderstood. In fact, even during the context of the war, heavy recruitment from Catholic parishes, particularly Irish parishes, heavy support from bishops and others of you know, the patriotic fund and recruitment efforts. I mean, Neil McNeil, who is half Irish, half Scottish in Nova Scotia, he is, the, he is the Archbishop of Toronto at the time. He even endorses a battalion that Catholics can join. And it's not just as a pacifist measure. I mean, they're looking for machine gunners and it's the Toronto bats and the bottom of the poster says, join the bats and hunt the Huns. And it's endorsed by McNeil. But You know, there'll be periodic attacks from the Orange Lodge or from highly placed Protestant politicians, you know, Horatio Hawken, Newton Wesley Roll, and others. And Catholics will scratch their heads and say, well, what gives here? Because we've shown ourselves to be loyal. But what happens, and I explore it a bit in the book, is that oftentimes these are external factors that involve Catholics elsewhere, whether it be in Quebec on the conscription crisis, the writing of Henri Bourassa, it could be the questions about whether Pope Benedict XV is loyal. The French think he's, you know, the Bosch Paps. The Germans call him Maledict XV because they think he's pro-French. It could be the Ukrainians. Uh, two weeks before the declaration of war, Nikita Butka, who is the Park of all Ukrainian Catholics in Canada, and of course himself, a citizen of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, said, you know, good Ukrainians should support Franz Joseph. And then two weeks later, war is declared, they're on the opposite side, he has to retract, and by the end of the war, he's facing 17 counts of sedition, and he's a Catholic. The Irish, for example, in Ireland, the Easter Rebellion, how do you deflect that kind of flagrant backstabbing? So Catholics here are having to navigate rather treacherous waters, much of which is not of their own creation, particularly when Protestants respond to them. An old parish priest of ours, I mean, only 25 years ago, would recollect the discrimination against the Irish in Toronto, and very bitterly. I mean, he was an old man at the time, but very bitterly. So I just want to get a sense, because the theme of your book is the imperial Irish. It is that the 
Irish have overcome whatever sense of inferiority they may have or a sense of inadequacy. They join the war effort. It's a war effort in favor of Britain. France, of course, Catholic, but not really Catholic in France. I mean, that doesn't really count, but really a supportive of the empire. And by the reading of your book, seem to be throwing themselves into the fight with a great deal of, of enthusiasm. My point is that they've overcome whatever tensions were still lingering at the turn of the century, whatever discriminations they would have felt, the petty discriminations of society, and they're still committing themselves to that. What kind of Catholic society are we looking at here? What is the leadership, for example? What is the leadership of the Catholic community on the eve of the First World War? So the bishops are generally younger, and the bishops take the lead. And so I have a litany of bishops in there, if I can use the term, that make you know public statements in advance of the war. Neil McNeil in Toronto, certainly prominent. Morrison in Antigonish, very prominent. Michael Francis Fallon in London. So clerically, both French Canadian and bishops in English Canada are supportive of the war effort. Clergy make public statements in favor of the war. They trod the stage in the public theaters of St. John, New Brunswick to help raise troops. They help raise money for the patriotic fund. They help raise money for hospitals. They help raise money for Belgian relief. Belgium is really symbolic to Canadian Catholics as a small Catholic country that's overrun and not only symbolic in terms of fighting Prussianism, but also symbolic of the fact that small nations should be free. And I think that catches the Irish imagination here as well. I mean, they're supporters of home rule, but by constitutional means. I mean, there are a minority of Irish who would prefer a Republican solution and one for Ireland that would be affected by physical force. But most Canadians are constitutionalists, most Irish Canadians. So you've got the bishops, the clergy, and then leading politicians. So those politicians in power, both liberal and conservative, are very supportive of the war effort. In fact, the future politician, Robert Mannion, future leader of the Conservative Party, is actually a liberal to start out with, serves as a doctor, is awarded the military cross for bravery. He comes back and then shifts sides during the 1917 election and becomes a unionist. Charles Doherty, Minister of Justice, Montreal, Irish Catholic, St. Anne's Ward. Actually, interesting fact about him is that he had fought in the Riel rebellions as part of the Montreal militia. I mean, he's, he's well known for his support of imperial causes. He helps write the conscription laws. He's a conservative, but yet extremely supportive of the war effort, one of the few conservatives that's elected in 1917. So we have a leadership during the First World War where you're saying the bishops are obviously fighting bishops. The Catholic priests are very supportive. This is where we see a big difference with French Canada, where the bishops were arguably in favor of the war. They spoke in favor of the war effort. They were not in favor of conscription, but they were in favor of the war effort. But there was a real division between the hierarchy and the priest on the ground who uh, tended to be, and again, we only know this secondhand. There's not a lot of diaries or anything like that, but it was known by many that the priests were actually arguing against the war effort privately or even in their own sermons. So you're depicting an Irish society that is fairly unified fairly cohesive, that is integrated in Canadian society, and then the war hits. Is there any hesitation among the Irish to support the Great Britain? I mean, it's 1914. Again, to situate it for our listeners, there has been an agreement in, in England, in, in Great Britain, to 
provide for some sort of home rule for Ireland in, in that very summer of 1914, spring or summer of 1914? Well, it passes at that point. The, the, the bill was in 1912. It was very divisive, certainly was in the papers here. And as I said before, you know, the Irish in Canada were predominantly constitutional nationalists. Now, Irish Protestants wanted to make sure that Irish Protestants in Northern Ireland particularly were shielded from home rule because home rule meant Rome rule because of the, the pre- predominantly Catholic population of the entire island. And in fact, the kind of support for the war is manifest at the grassroots level as well. It's not just the Catholic leadership. So, for example, fraternal organizations like the Knights of Columbus become very proactive in supporting the war effort. The Ancient Order of Hibernians, which, you know, for the most part is an American organization of Irish Catholic males and very Republican, very Fenian, as some might say, in terms of their sympathies. In Canada, there's a movement to extricate themselves from the American parent body. They even asked Sir Robert Borden to keep the American Hibernian uh, newspaper from crossing the border, claiming it's seditious literature. The AOH in Canada is supportive of the war effort. And I think there's this underlying belief that the principles for which they would be fighting is that small nations would be free and Ireland would be included in that. And they were reflecting, too, their relationship with John Redmond, who is the head of the Irish Parliamentary Party at Westminster, who had promised support for the imperial war effort as proof that Ireland can be loyal, that Ireland can function as an autonomous part of the British Empire, much like Canada. It would become a dominion. Exactly. And in fact, when you go through Redmond's papers, he has considerable correspondence with Canadian politicians and he's trying to glean advice from them as to how to move forward with a kind of federal model for Ireland within the empire. So in 1914, I mean, there is strong support from the grassroots right up to the top in English-speaking Catholic Canada. And I would argue as well, given the fact that the archbishops of Quebec, Montreal, and Ottawa signed a joint pastoral letter in September of 1914, that there is that kind of support in Quebec. And there's a whole gamut of reasons why the whole war effort in Quebec goes wrong. Okay, so let's talk about one of them, and that's Archbishop Fallon, the Archbishop of London, who you've identified already as one of the leaders of the church and of the community at the beginning of the war. Now, Archbishop Fallon, of course, really does not like French Canadians, does not like French Canadian education, and goes to war on that front also, which causes a tremendous division inside the Catholic community in Canada. What is your sense of Archbishop Michael Fallon? Well, you know, Fallon is, he's the next generation. His parents are Irish-born. He's born in Kingston. He becomes an oblate priest, teaches at the bilingual University of Ottawa. And I think at the turn of the 20th century, that's where his legacy begins in terms of the internal war within the Catholic Church between French and Anglophone Catholics. I mean, he ends up jettisoned from the university after a failed attempt for an English takeover, but they place him right across the street at St. Joseph's Parish. So he has his bully pulpit right across the street from the university. When he's appointed Bishop of London in 1909, I mean, most French Canadians, particularly French Ontarians, are apoplectic because Diocese of London, where he is appointed, has a large Francophone population, particularly in Essex-Kent. He is unfriendly to what he calls aggressive French-Canadian nationalism. And he feels that French language bilingual schools, which they essentially are at that point, depriving Catholic children of the opportunity to succeed. Now, the interesting thing about this is that he does have Vatican support. I mean, this is a 
terribly interesting period because the skullduggery in the corridors of the Vatican between French Canadian interests and Anglophone Canadian interests are the stuff of which a book should be written. And what's interesting is that further to that, Fallon will have the support of the apostolic delegate, the Pope's representative in Canada, both uh, Sparetti and Stagni, the two that appear during his early tenure, are both supportive of the idea that if Catholicism is truly to advance in Canada, it's going to advance under the auspices of the English language. And that involves the treatment of new Catholic immigrants to the country, of which there are tens of thousands. Uh, That means the control of Episcopal sees or bishoprics west of Ontario. I mean, this is a battle royale between the French and the other. And Fallon's at the heart of it. And then he becomes prominent in the war effort. So that alienates some French Canadians, you know, he's my enemy. And now he's not only unofficially in charge of the chaplaincy and raising priests for the Canadian Expeditionary Force, but he's well-connected politically. Is it the drive to, I'll try to understand Fallon, going to the extent that he does to fight the notion of French education in Ontario. Again, it's, a, it's an Ontario story, which will cause tremendous tension in Quebec. Henri Bourassa will focus on the language question in Ontario. As the file moves through the courts, as the file eventually moves to Rome, the resistance of the English-speaking bishops of Ontario really angers French-Canadian opinion. And it certainly doesn't help the war effort. I mean, the, the argument is easily made. How can English Canada ask French-Canadian to fight a foreign war when it is actively suppressing the language rights of its own people in Ontario. The the Prussians next door is a famous expression that was articulated at the time. Again, I pointed to it as a feature, one of those many features of the Irish Catholic community at the time. There's all sorts of little wars going on inside the community while it is still driving forward on this war effort, encouraging the war effort, contributing. Let's let's move to that part. The, The contribution of Irish kids to the war effort is important. You point out in your book that after the Anglicans and after the Presbyterians, is it? The Catholics are the third largest contributors to the war effort in terms of men. Yeah, when you go through battalion lists and things and you break it down by religion, Anglicans are usually number one, Presbyterians number two, and Methodists and uh, English-speaking Catholics are usually sort of neck and neck for number three, depending on what part of the country you're from. So, I mean, you've got this groundswell. Some of it originates in the school system, which I think prior to the war was becoming increasingly Canadianized so that children going to separate schools, particularly in Ontario or you know, just being enculturated within their own regions of Canada would see the war as a noble effort. Now, I mean, young men and young women in the nursing corps go to war for a variety of reasons. And I try to enumerate that. Oftentimes it's a family thing. If one brother goes, several brothers go. Parish priests, enormously supportive. So young men from parishes. St. Paul's Parish in Toronto, for example, is acknowledged as having the largest number of recruits of any Christian church in the city. And that's acknowledged by Mayor Tommy Church, who is a dyed-in-the-wool, oranger-than-orange orangeman. So it's parish-based. It's the way in which they were educated, a sense of adventure. I did cross-tabulation of recruitment levels by using the Labour Gazette. Tell us more about your research on this, because you dedicated a great deal of effort to getting an accurate sense of the Catholic contribution. That posed particular challenges? Yeah, I cut it three ways. So, for example, I started by looking at select battalions across the country. But that gives you really only a sense of the early recruits, and certainly not the conscripts, and certainly not those who recruit in large numbered battalions that were 
eventually broken up. I looked at recruitment by just examining parish honor rolls. But that's limited because it only gives you generally most parishes just honor the dead. So I decided that I would expand that search and take a look at war memorials and cenotaphs in public spaces. I did selected areas. I did uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia, and I did the Upper Ottawa Valley. Um, because it's a nice place to be in the summertime when you're doing outdoor research. But I have a data set of well over 2,000 men, and I mined all of their personnel files and consulted with physicians to take a look at their medical papers. So one of the chapters in the book really provides a kind of a group biography of these English-speaking Catholic young men. Tell me about Ned Murray. Your composite study of the Irish effort is summarized by Ned Murray. Edward Francis Murray. Ned Murray was born in Pembroke in the 1880s, and the Murray family was quite prominent. I mean, there were many priests. Uh, they were well married. They were a merchant family in the Upper Ottawa Valley. Ned Murray's father actually had two families. His first wife passed away, so Ned Murray's half-brother eventually became the state president of the Knights of Columbus. I mean, they were a very well-placed family. Now, Ned Murray recruits during the Boer War. He's not unusual. There are many Irish Catholics that join the voluntary forces that go to South Africa. He's one of them. He's a bit of a war hero in the Boer War. He demobilizes after the war. There's not much to do in the Ottawa Valley, and he joins that transhumance across the country and takes up sheep farming in Alberta. He was always a member of the militia, and he was waiting to become an officer. Couldn't wait anymore. He joined as a private because he's that keen. <laughs> he goes to war. He's wounded twice before he's killed in action at Amiens in 1918 during the last 100 days push. But I found him really microcosmic of so many others because I would be going through the files and I got to know some of these men and women. Christina Campbell, actually born in Scotland, ended up in Victoria and then volunteered as a nurse and she drowned on the Llandovery Castle when it was torpedoed by a U-boat in 1918. Margaret C. MacDonald, who's not Irish, she's Scottish, she comes from Bailey's Brook, Nova Scotia, but she is the first woman in the British Empire to earn the rank of major because she's the chief matron of all nurses for the Canadian Expeditionary, for the Canadian Army Medical Corps. Really interesting characters with different stories. Frank McGee, related to Thomas Darcy McGee from Ottawa, recruits. He's known as One-Eyed Frank because he was a hockey player, still holds the record, 14 goals in a Stanley Cup game for the Ottawa Silver 7. He recruits, and we don't know how he got through with a one-eye from a hockey injury, but either he memorized the eye chart, which is one version, or the doctor just knew him as a hockey hero and waved him on. Now, he's, he's wounded and then killed in action in 1917, but all of these stories of individuals with different reasons for going to war, but nonetheless unheralded in the, how should we say, the main narrative of the CEF. Well, your book does a great job of bringing them back. World War One again, we think of World War One. we think of the division over conscription. Mm. That was not an issue for the Catholics? Oh, it definitely it was a huge issue. And I talk about that, you know, at great length. I mean, it divided French-Canadian Catholics from English-speaking Catholics, but the Irish were divided themselves, and normally along party lines. So, for example, there were those who would not desert Laurier. I mean, historically, Irish Catholics had a strong affinity to the Liberal Party, but there were many Irish Catholic Conservatives as well. So, for example, three MPs continue to stand in the 1917 election, including Chubby Power, who would eventually become a minister in Mackenzie King's government. He's demobilized after being wounded. He runs successfully in Quebec South. He's re-elected as a liberal. Charlie Murphy's re-elected as a liberal in Russell. Emmanuel Devlin is re-elected as a liberal across the river from Ottawa. Meanwhile, 
the unionist government has one Catholic in it? Well, the thing is the union government has one Catholic cabinet minister, and that's Charles Doherty, who runs successfully. Not very good. Yeah, well, unfortunately, I mean, Borden would have French Canadians in, but the ones who ran were defeated. But Robert Mannion, of course, is is elected in what is now Thunder Bay, and he's one of those liberals that crosses to the union and eventually stays. He doesn't go back like Roll and the others after the war. He stays and then, of course, becomes Tory leader during World War II. But the bishops themselves are very supportive of conscription because they want to win the war. This is extraordinarily important. And so major Catholic newspapers are divided. Some are very, very much pro the government position. Others are saying, we wish that the government had done something else. These were papers that would have traditionally been supportive of the Liberal Party. And then, of course, Fallon comes into it. And just before the election, he issues a public letter saying that the country must support conscription and this government. Now, traditionally, his sympathies had been more with the Liberal Party, but here he stands front and center with Borden. And the interesting thing is he's, once again, a lightning rod of controversy, but he really does represent a very large part of at least Irish Catholic clerics that say, we must proceed and win this war. J.J. O'Gorman, an indefatigable priest from Ottawa, who's also a chaplain, wounded, he chimes in and says, you know, we don't stop because of conscription. We pursue, we win the war, and we do double duty because by winning the war, will also secure the principle of small nations having their autonomy. And that really is the core motivation in all this. Yeah. Mark, how does the, the war is over, uh, 1918, what, what becomes of the Irish community? What can we say at the end of the day that the Irish community experienced as a result of the First World? Is, is, is the community stronger coming into the 1920s? Is it the same? What is your sense of its stature inside Canadian society? Where, where, what is the legacy of all this? I think in some of the regions, there's a, there's a higher degree of respectability that was sought, earned, and, and granted. In other parts of the country, particularly Toronto, you could have backsliding and you would have these lightning rod issues. You had enormous respect given to many of the Catholic clerics. Neil McNeil emerges as one of the most popular Catholic bishops, even among Protestants. This is the Archbishop of Toronto. But the same could be said for James Morrison in Antigonish. So there's a, a degree of respectability. There's also the Catholic Army Huts campaign which were building recreational facilities, was a cooperative venture headed by the Knights of Columbus, but Protestants and Catholics went door-to-door collecting money. There's a certain degree of rapprochement. The real damage that's done, Patrice, is the damage that is done within the Catholic Church, where there's a centrifugal force that casts French Canadians to the outside and a centripetal force that brings English-speaking Catholics to the center of English-speaking Canada's mainstream. The Church is bitterly divided, and that's one of the things that the Chevalier de Colomb and the Knights of Columbus are going to try to heal, that McNeil and Archbishop Bourchaisie of Montreal will try to repair. And so the 1920s are a time when the Catholic Church has to look at itself and repair the damage that was done as a result of the war, conscription, bilingual schools, and people like Michael Francis Fallon. Well, the bilingual schools will eventually be resolved in 1928, 1927, When uh, G. Howard Ferguson sort of... This is the Premier of Ontario finally resolved. Thank you, Mark, for this insightful discussion. That was Mark McGowan talking about Canada's Irish community during the First World War. He's the author of The Imperial Irish, Canada's Irish Catholics Fight the Great War, 1914-1918. 
published at McGill Queen's University Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the society does, including its publications, its blog, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to donate a bit if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's history. The Champlain Society is entirely voluntary, but money is always needed to keep the lights on. Thanks for listening. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded in the Alan Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University. It was recorded on February 9th, 2018 and produced by Sumit Dami and Hugh Backhurst. Thank you, everybody. See you next time. Mm-hmm.